So um, we're going to transition into the talk now. Uh, we're grateful you're here. That means one of two things. It means that either you don't like basketball or you already lost. And so either way, <laughs> we feel sorry for you. Um, but we're really excited that you're here and excited to uh, jump into this uh, passage in Acts. Good. Uh, so let's uh, begin with uh, a couple of questions um, because we're going to look at an extended metaphor this morning. So I want to start this way. This is just a raise of hands. How many of you have ever raced or competed in anything? How many of you have ever raced or competed in anything? So raise your hands high. So 90% of us, many of us have raced or competed at some level. For those who raised their hands, uh, and I, I wanted a couple of answers out here, so feel free to speak up. Why did you race? The t-shirt, good. Good. There were boys on the cross-country team. Good. This is exactly what we were hoping would come out of this. So perfect. Thank you. What else? What were reasons you competed, reasons you raced? Parents thought it would be a good idea. Physical fitness goals. So you had some goals that you set forth, and uh, racing or competing helped you reach those. What else? To win. Okay, nice. With a high five in the back. Well done. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? To impress my dad, okay. What else? What? what? Team building. Team building, cool. So raced or competed as part of a team, okay? Community. Community, good. So similar to, uh, to team building, there's a, a community aspect of it. Any other reasons? Challenge to challenge yourself. Cool, so something within you. Cool. So these are all reasons. Um, the boys on the cross-country team, not exactly where we're going this morning, but that's fine. Um, so uh, let me argue something here for a minute, because I believe that racing or competing is an innate aspect of humanity, that we're all hardwired at some level to be inclined to race or compete for things. So I have uh, three little boys, uh, six-year-old twins and another one who's uh, almost four. Uh, they're almost six, almost four, and we race and compete over everything. There is nothing that we're not racing or competing for. So just yesterday, uh, my wife uh, uh, wasn't home and I was uh, eating dinner with the boys and we were racing to see who could eat dinner the the fastest. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't say that. They're just naturally saying who could eat their grilled cheese sandwich the fastest. They're always racing on their scooters or racing uh, down the block who runs the fastest. They're racing to see who can climb the playground the fastest. this last one here, and this is, if you have kids, you may have experienced this. If you ever want anything to get done and you have a little kid, you just say, hey, I'll time you to see how long it will take you to go get this for me or to go and do this. Naturally, they're like, oh, absolutely, I'll do that. I wasn't going to clean my room before, but if you're going to time me, absolutely, I'll clean my room. <laughs> Racing and competing really drives people. So uh, Michelle kind of mentioned that, that there's something in us, and, and a lot of times these races or competitions drive us in a lot of ways. Some of the greatest feats of human accomplishment, I think, can directly be tied to racing or competing. In each of us, again, I would argue that there is this sense of like a competition gene, a gene that inclines us to want to race, a gene that inclines us to want to compete, So for some of you who maybe didn't raise your hands in that first one, you may say, well, I don't really have this inclination to race or compete. And so a foot race isn't necessarily for everyone, but think about it this way. 
Maybe you're competing and climbing the corporate ladder. Or there's this deep internal competition to say, I want my family to look the best or have the best-looking kids or have the most well-behaved kids. Or maybe you're competing for a job, competing for a promotion or something like that. So regardless of your inclination, whether it's foot racing or or competitions or something that's a little bit beyond those things, the metaphor that we're going to look at today is going to be this metaphor of a race that Paul talks about. And because uh, racing is innate, because it's kind of within us, this desire to compete, this desire to accomplish, we tend, as humans, to create ways to focus those desires, those inner longings. And so, if you've noticed, across culture, we've begun to create lots of races to give ourselves outlets and a chance to express what is within. And if you notice races, they continue to somehow increase in the level of ridiculousness, right? So, like, you start out with just simple races, and we find ways to, like, ramp up the intensity of the race. So let's give you a couple examples. Start with, like, the couch to 5K race. You're like, I haven't done anything at all, and now I want to do my first 5K. Then you're like, I'm done with 5K. Okay, 5K to 10K. Okay, 10K, what's next? Let's just do a marathon, right? And we just keep raising the stakes. And if marathons aren't enough, then you do ultra marathons. So now you're running 50 miles, 100 miles. Then if that's not enough, you say, well, let's take that ultra marathon and let's put it in a desert. Why wouldn't we do that? (laughs) And then if the desert isn't enough, then you say, well, let's add some electrocution and obstacles. And you get your Spartan races and your Tough Mudders and your zombie races. And then we just try to change the genre a little bit. And we go, what if we raced with dogs in the snow? Then we call it the Iditarod race. So we take horses and then we start to race those and we'll call it a triple crown. Or what if we just get into a bunch of cars and we put those cars in the desert and we drive for 24 hours and call it the Baja race, right? We just keep upping the level. We've upped it so much now that we actually have a television show called The Amazing Race. How many people have seen The Amazing Race? Allison, uh, who is right there. Uh, Did you actually, you applied to be on The Amazing Race, is that correct? Joe, oh, Joe did. Okay, Joe over here. So... The, it's a compelling TV show if you've ever seen it. It televises this, these groups of people that go out and they're racing across the world uh, in this race. To I don't actually, I, to be real honest, I've never actually seen it, but I'm assuming it's compelling because a lot of people are watching it. Um, but they're competing for something at the end, uh, probably something really cool. But we've televised these races. People are glued to their TVs to watch this. Recently, Uh, I watched, if you've ever uh, seen Devour, which is this website that posts a couple of really, um, like, the trending or cool videos of the day. Um, I've spent a little bit of time on Devour, and they uh, recently posted this short documentary, about 20 minutes, about a race called the Barkley 100. Has anybody heard of the Barkley 100? A couple people, maybe. So the Barkley 100 is a race in Tennessee, starts and ends in a state park, and it's five 20-mile loops that people are running over the course of 60 hours. It's a 60-hour time limit, 20-mile loops, and they all start and end in this frozen head state uh, park, uh, like parking lot. And so they go out, 20-mile loop, they come back, go out, 20-mile loop. Only 40 runners can enter this race, and over the course of its 30-year history, only 14 people have ever finished this race, all 20-mile, or all five 20-mile loops. There's not a lot of, uh, really, there's no... Uh, aid stations along the way. It's this insane race. Over the course of the uh, 20-mile loops, you gain 60,000 feet of elevation. 
That's two Mount Everests that people are gaining over the course of 60 hours. So if you ever want to watch this documentary, it's an incredible documentary about this race. Um, but these races just keep getting bigger and bigger and more ridiculous. And our desire is to want to overcome or to want to figure out how to endure. We talk about those things a lot. And Paul is really getting at those same ideas here in Acts. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul is kind of wrapping up his ministry in Ephesus. The interesting thing about uh, this particular passage is that he's trying to give his little goodbye speech, so to speak. It's his uh, final departing thoughts and words, specifically directed toward the elders or the leaders of the church. And what he begins to do is kind of walk through his ministry. And he, Ephesus is the city he spent most of his time in. Uh, he's been there longer than a uh, longer stay there than any other city that he ministered in. So he's had several years there. He's invested in leaders. He's spoke publicly from place to place. He's seen the church kind of rise up. He's assigned certain leaders to oversee responsibilities. And he gets to this section starting in verse 22. And uh, he has some words for the church. Verse 22, he says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now we want to look at several ideas in this particular passage, but the first thing that Paul begins to talk about as he speaks of this race is the idea of cost. He says right at the beginning, I, I take an account. He's trying to use this illustration to basically say if I was an accountant, or if I was someone weighing out the value of something, I'd put weight on one side, I'd put other weight on another side to see what is the cost or the benefit of me actually running this race. Because Paul makes it really clear in this passage that whenever you enter a race of whatever type, with a desire to overcome, a desire to endure, a desire to accomplish, that there will always be costs associated with the race. So let me ask you this question, kind of get dialogue going again. What are some of the costs that are associated with running a race? If you've ever run a race before, if you've participated in any of the race we described, what are some of the costs? Buying shoes. Buying shoes, okay. Uh, Time. Time, good. Shin splints. Shin splints, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Say that again. Spousal okay. strain. Strains. A relationship you're talking about? Yeah. So like you're training, so it's taking time away. Sure. Totally. What else? More bathing. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Bathing's a good thing just in general if you're not racing either, <laughs> right. but that's fine. Potentially more. What else? What are some other costs? What was that? Entry fees. Good. Okay. Okay. Good. Cost to your pride, perhaps. It also seems to me that when people enter into racing at the beginning, they're kind of like casual about it. But then if they're enjoying it, then they're like, well, what else do I need to get better? Right? Regardless of any 
time changed in their race. Like now they've got like moisture wicking outfits, right? <laughs> and then like better shoes and then, oh, my calf kind of cramped up, so I'm going to get calf sleeves. And like it just keeps going and going and going. My uh, son and I, the last couple of years, have run Bloomsday. And uh, every year, Jack spends at least 10 minutes trying to convince me why it would be really good for him to get some of that goo that runners have. <laughs> so you like keep it in his pocket and then at the halfway point, break open the goo, squeeze it in, get that burst of energy or whatever that thing's supposed to do for you and keep going. I try to convince him that hey, seven miles, I don't, I don't know that you need to like refuel like that, right? At the halfway point. But nevertheless, it's like, man, gotta have it. That would be so great. That would help me so much. There's all these things that we kind of keep adding up. And if uh, you're like some of us, we get to the end of the race, and then now we sign up for physical therapy afterwards, right? So there's always <laughs> costs, yeah. and those costs uh, keep growing. But it's not just financial costs, and some of you uh, alluded to this. There, for every race, there are physical costs as well, time, energy, sleep, training, possible injury at the end. If we look at Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12, you can turn there briefly if you want to, we see this race analogy used again, this time looking more towards the physical costs of a race. This is what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lay aside every weight and sin. Run the race with endurance. Just as there are physical costs to the race that we enter on weekends, there are physical costs to the race that we are talking about, physical costs to the race that Paul is talking about in our passage in Acts. You see, we experience these physical costs when we strive to live a faithful life, even when it's easier not to. When we look for ways to serve others when, frankly, we would just like to be served. Or when you strive to be present with your family and your friends, even when you come home exhausted at the end of the day. Those are all physical costs of this race. The writer of Hebrews understands the physical costs and concludes that it takes incredible endurance to run this race. Steve Prefontaine, who many of you know, we're from the Pacific Northwest. He's one of the most famous runners from around this area. Steve Prefontaine says this, a lot of people run a race to see who is the fastest. I run to see who has the most guts, who can punish himself into exhausting pace and then at the end, punish himself even more. The greatest runners have the guts to endure through the physical costs. Paul lived his life with this kind of endurance, but then adds the reality that sacrifice is a foundational element to running the race. If we look back at Acts 22 through 24, it says this, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
You see, in this passage, Paul exclaims that the race he is running is literally costing him his life. He understands that the race costs everything, that it's not just his comfort or his freedom or his finances, because those things he did not even consider of value, but that the race set before him could only be finished through total sacrifice, a willingness to give his whole life. And I'm convinced that there is no different race than the race that we have been called on, that the costs are not just financial, but the physical that it costs our whole life to run this race. It takes great endurance, but mostly a willingness to sacrifice. So as Kevin's been describing, and what Paul kind of makes clear in the passage, is that there are costs. Not just physical, not just financial, but spiritual, emotional. There's a cost of our very life. And we would argue that that's probably why some people just decide not to even race, right? That it might not be worth it. There's certain races that I would never consider doing. I'm also not playing hoop fest, would be another example, because it's just not something that I'm willing to put time and investment and energy and cost into. We suggested a little bit earlier as we were talking about races that there seems in our society to be this goal to continue to ramp up the intensity or the level of the race. But I think we could at the same time argue that perhaps in Christianity, if you were to evaluate the brand of faith in American Christianity today, that what's being promoted is almost the opposite of the culture. Culture is deciding to want to increase the effort of the race, where in Christianity, we talk about it as if, like, we want to lower the bar. We want to figure out how, hey, man, I mean, as long as you just kind of run, that's fine. Or if you walk, that's great. I mean, we're all in the same race. We find ways to, like, lower the bar, it seems. And it, it struck us as we were kind of preparing for this that if Paul was writing to us, if he was describing kind of the race, would he look at your faith today? Would he look at mine? Would he look at the church as a whole and say, hey, congratulations. You guys are running the race with motivation and with intensity and with this sense that you understand a sacrifice is needed. Like, would he be creating this energy about the way we're competing We've been wrestling with that, and there might not be a good answer for it. There might not be something right off the top of your head where you can go, yeah or no, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But he gets at this same idea in 1 Corinthians. He says this. It'll be up on the screen. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So run the race that you may win it, is what he's saying. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Another version says, but I beat my body and keep it under control or make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Could you imagine, though, him writing 
today's church and saying, instead of, I beat my body, I, I whip it into submission, I, I conquer it, he says, well, hey guys, just, just relax. Put forth as little effort as possible. Like, just coast. If you can coast in your faith, that'd be a great place to be. Or, hey, why don't you just jog because we decided this year everybody gets a prize. Right? I mean, that's the, the, the new goal, right? Everyone competes, everyone gets a prize. We're all winners, right? I just don't see Paul using that kind of language. I think Paul makes it really clear throughout the New Testament and throughout these passages that there's no option, right? You run the race to obtain the prize. Why? Because the race is so important. If we look back at Acts, Paul ends the metaphor with the conclusion, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The ultimate goal for this race for Paul was the mission that was laid out before him by Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is how Paul understood the purpose and reason for the race that he was running. The way he ran, how he endured, and what he sacrificed was all for the purposes of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is the same race that we are running. We have been given the same call to have lives that testify to the gospel. If we've been given the same call then we should be able to look around at each other and see the ways that we are testifying. See the ways that our lives testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Now, for those of you who raised your hand that you have competed in a race before, let me ask you this question and be honest. When you were waiting, this classic in Bloomsday, when you're kind of waiting five minutes before the race, the gun is about to go off and everybody's just kind of standing around, how many of you people look around and start sizing up people next to you? Yeah, okay, four of us, awesome. You see the guy next to you in jean shorts, and you're like, well, I'll probably crush that dude. There's no, there's no way he's going to beat me in this race. You look around, you see who looks like they're in the best shape. Maybe you look at their clothes, or you kind of check out their shoes, see if they got the new Nikes, the new Reebok pumps, if those things are still out there. You see who's stretching and then how they're stretching because how you stretch before a race is a good indicator of how good you are or how much you know. You begin to make some assumptions to those who look the part like, oh, that guy or that, that lady looks the part. She's stretching in the appropriate way. She's got Nike clothes. She must be a good runner. So you look for those who look the part and then you make the, uh, the assumption that those must be the best runners. We, we do this kind of thing all the time where we kind of size up the competition. Yesterday I was down at Hoop Fest for the day, and uh, there's this weird correlation between those who dress a certain way and the way they play. Have you ever noticed that? It seems, and I could be way off on this because I've never been really much of a basketball player, but it seems like those that have the nicest and newest uniform or outfit wearing the nicest and best basketball shoes and that talk the best game, can't make layups. Why is that? Have you noticed that? And then the people that you're like, well, that guy doesn't look like he's really much of a player. He just has normal clothes on. And then, like, they crush everybody. 
Because there is this weird thing that happens sometimes where we in Christianity just try to put on certain things without actually having the core depth of what it means to testify to the gospel. So Paul talks about that idea again and again in Scripture as well. I think what he's saying is there's a correlation between the way we live and what our testimony is. He says it can't be with words, but with action and in truth. He says that it shouldn't be just in the way you promote or the charisma you have or the way in which you declare your faith, but rather it has everything to do with the outflow of your life, the love that you demonstrate, the actions that are embodied. In Colossians 3, he talks about this idea when he says, then put on certain clothes as God's children. And then he lists them. He says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being, being people who forgive one another. And then he says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What he's describing are the clothes that, that embody what it means to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That it's the compassion and the kindness and the humility and the love that testify to it. In fact, if you look back in Acts chapter 20 here, just look down in verses uh, like 17 and following. If you look through there, you're going to see a list of characteristics that I think Paul is trying to remind the leadership of in this passage. He says this, you know how I've lived among you, this idea that he was walking among them, that he was serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials. Verse 20, he talks about not shrinking back from declaring anything. In verse 21, this idea that, uh, that there should be repentance toward God and toward faith. And then he goes on to say that he was constrained by the Spirit. And all these things are examples or illustrations of what it means to begin to testify or to embody the core values of the kingdom. We talk a lot about the core values of what it looks like to live as a kingdom person today. Not just someday, not just when we arrive or when Christ comes back, but to live that way today. Kevin mentioned uh, Steve Prefontaine a little earlier. He has this quote that uh, I all the time remind soccer players of. All the time I keep bringing it up again and again and again. And the quote says this, to give anything less than the best is to sacrifice the gift. To give anything less than the best is to sacrifice the gift. And I think if we were to just pause for a moment and think about this race, this race of life, the gift that we have been given, not just of life and of breath, but the gift of Jesus. And I know that there are times that I give less than the best. There are times where I am tired and worn out. There's times even when I think, is it even worth it? We're in this race. We agreed. We signed up for it. We're a part of it. But man, I, I tell you, there are times that I say, it, it might not be worth it. Why do I do this race? Quitting is the easy way out. When the race gets tough, when the circumstances feel like they are too much to handle, it's easy to begin to convince ourselves that quitting is just the best next option. I found myself uh, in this place before. Um, I, I, in a season of my life when I was like in kind of my mid-20s, 25 to about 
uh, 28 or so, I was running a lot more, and I really enjoyed running at this point, and I had a goal to run a marathon. I'm not a great runner. Uh, I kind of feel big and oafy out there running. It's not a real, like, beautiful run, <laughs> but, but I enjoyed it, and it was something that I uh, was putting some time and effort into, and so I signed up for a race. At this point, my wife and I were uh, living in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and each year, many of you, uh, or not many of you, some of you may have even done this race, but they have the Coeur d'Alene Marathon. It's usually like a weekend in May. If you've lived around this area, you know that there are some weekends in May that are absolutely beautiful. And then you know that there are some weekends in May that it feels like it's February. This weekend was a February weekend. For whatever reason, uh, I believe it was like May 20th or something like that, uh, it was low 50s, upper 40s, and rainy and absolutely horrific outside. And we were just doing a marathon on that day. <laughs> And I was running and was actually feeling pretty good, and, uh, and the temperature wasn't terrible, and it was kind of like that, okay, I can run in this. As long as I'm moving, I'm going to stay warm. And, uh, and so I had a decent pace going. I was kind of where I wanted to be for the goal that I set for myself. And uh, there was this hill that we went up. It's out by Higgins Point, if you're familiar with me, and it's kind of this weird side hill. So it's at an angle, and you're running on it. And as I uh, was running, I miss, took a misstep or something happened and tweaked my IT band and my knee, and it was pretty, not a, like a dramatic, horrific uh, injury right there in the course, but it was enough to where I really couldn't run at this point. And this was about mile 18 or so. And so uh, I had quite a bit of race left. If you've run a marathon, you know that once you get into like the 18s, 20s, that's where it starts getting real. And, uh, and so I'm here, and I'm kind of at this place, and now I'm walking, uh, I didn't have to walk before then, and so now I'm walking, and I figured, well, I'll just walk to the next aid station, and hopefully I'll be able to walk this off. And so I would got there, and then I, I started to try to run, and I would be able to run for about 50, 100 feet or so, and then the pain would be too much, and so I'd have to walk again. And at this point, now I'm getting cold, because I'm not moving that fast, and again, it's not real uh, nice outside. And I begin to kind of think through all this stuff, well, for longevity of my running career, I should probably just quit right now. Like, there's no reason for me to try to muscle through this thing. I look ridiculous out here. It's cold. I'll just quit. Grace is somewhere along the course. She'll pick me up. We'll go to breakfast. It'll be great. Um, so I'm kind of rolling through all the reasons why it would be best for me to quit at this point. And along the course is one of my good friends. We were in a small group with this family. He was a, a, a good runner, a great friend of mine. He was out there along the course cheering me on. His name was Sam. And Sam uh, was out there just in you know, pretty much street clothes, and I stopped, and I was just like, man, I think I'm going to quit. And he's like, there's no way you're going to quit. You can't quit. You've trained too hard for this. I'm like, well, honestly, I don't know if I can go anymore. I mean, my knee, it's just brutal. And so Sam said, well, I'll go with you. So Sam jumps in on the course, and for the last eight miles of this marathon, runs and walks with me in the rain, upper 40 degrees, terrible outside. And all along the way, Sam is step in step with me. When I run, he's running. When I'm walking, he's walking. And I kept saying, Sam, you can go. Like, you don't have to do this. Still thinking, like, if he goes, then I could quit. This would be awesome. <laughs> Sam was like, absolutely not. I'm in this thing with you until the end. We will cross the finish line together. And he said, well, I can't really cross the finish line. I'll duck out about 15 feet before the finish line. But we're going to make it through this thing together. I'm pretty convinced that had I not had Sam with me, I would have quit that race. I think Kevin's story illustrates why we run the race. So many times in life, we think that we're actually running on our own. We look at this passage sometimes and we go, man, I can't live up to that. 
I can't beat my body and make it, I can't endure, I can't, but the, the truth of the matter is, I just like Sam came alongside of, there is someone who has been walking with us the whole way. Somebody who's been understanding the pace at which we're running, who's constantly encouraging and loving and demonstrating. And I think sometimes when we get in the race, we lose sight of the one we're racing for and the one we're racing with. This isn't a race just to figure out if we can endure. This isn't just a race to be able at the end to get the t-shirt. This is a race that's the most important race of life, and it's one in which Jesus says, I race with you. That we do this together. That there are parts of the race he carries us, and there are parts where he just is there applauding. May we be people who continue to run well. Because in many ways, it's the only race that matters. Let's pray.